Welcome to Secrets, the recent winner of the Black Podcasters Listeners Love Award, where KP and PR share their knowledge and experiences in corporate America to advocate for creating generational wealth for the village. Here's how our listener describes Secrets. Keith and Ricky talk about everything in the workplace and beyond that you've always wanted to know about but never really felt comfortable asking. From microaggressions to being your authentic self to systemic racism, KP and PR provide some of the most excellent career advice on the market. And in season six, these brothers will continue coming with hot fire on how to stay on code and trying to reach and exceed your career aspirations, how to use your power and privilege for good, and how to survive the same old corporate performative acts. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, want to challenge you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. So fill up those cups and welcome to season six. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Secret Season 6 is on fire already. And we got our first guest on the show today. But before we even get into that, KP, what is happening in your world, man? You know what? I'm doing all right today, PR, and I'm I'm super excited about season six, right? This whole theme about getting on code is really so relevant right now, just in terms of all the stuff that's going on in the world that we talked about last week. And so I'm just really excited to talk about this topic with our first guest of the season. Yeah, I mean, look, you and I have, have been talking behind the scenes about you know, this village alignment, you know, and being able to, you know, stay on code. And I'm excited as heck today because we're going to mix it up with our sister Yolanda Jackson, right? And we've been talking about having Yolanda on the show, you know, for a while, but it was a wrap when I recently heard her speak while she was being honored for the many things that she gets uh, rewarded and acknowledged for. But when I heard her speak, you know, about some of the stuff that she'll talk to us about today, as well as some of the other people that spoke, but more importantly about the impact that she's had on people's lives. Man, I got goosebumps. I mean, I literally, you know, got goosebumps. I was like, man, I I think I've been taking this sister for granted. Like, I, I don't really know how, how much work she actually puts into the community. So I knew at that moment right then, it was a wrap. We had to go ahead and stop messing around and let Yolanda cut line. You okay? That's we right. had to That's get right. to the front, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And as we talked about during our opener, getting on code is all about, you know, using your power and privilege to positively impact other lives. And I know Miss Jackson is for real. <laughs> Y'all get that outcast. Y'all get that outcast reference. <laughs> Never meant to make my daughter cry. <laughs> all right. So, but we're going to have a little fun today. Yolanda, we wanted to welcome you to Secrets. It's so good to have you on the show. My brothers, two of the smartest Black professional men that I know, thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me to have a conversation with you gentlemen today. Yeah. Hey, you know, that means the check must have cashed, Keith. You know, <laughs> she wasn't playing basketball with that check. But hey, uh, Secrets family, before we get started, you know, with Miss Yolanda, you know, here, and, and I'm just so, you know, honored to have her on kind of just want to put a little respect on her name so everybody know who we're talking about, right? So, I mean, buckle up, because I just want to be able to talk about her accolades and what she actually does, you know, here, right? And you'll understand why we wanted to have Yolanda, you know, on the show. But Yolanda Jackson is currently the executive director and general counsel of the San Francisco Bar Association and its uh, Justice and Diversity Center. And this organization, just to make this, you know, make sense to folks, is an organization that has been around for 150 years, okay? 150 years. That's a really big deal. It's the oldest bar association in the state of California and the second oldest bar association in the country, okay? Like, this is a huge deal. When we start talking about purple elephants, this is one right here. This is a big deal. So Yolanda Jackson, she is a, a UCLA Bruin. She got her undergraduate degree, you know, from uh, UCLA. She also got her law degree from Empire School of Law. Um, she is an adjunct law school professor at UC Law School of uh, San Francisco and Golden Gate uh, University uh, School of Law. She has uh, been in a bunch of corporate executive level roles. Formerly, she was managing partner and litigator of the Fireman's Fund, their West Coast Council legal offices. 
She's owned and participated in her own mediation and arbitration, you know, firm, which I can say I've had to use, you know, a few times myself there. And some just some of the notable awards that she's received now. Buckle up, because I, I am about to put some stank on this. I know she gets embarrassed about this, but she can't do nothing about this right here, Keith. Okay, so look, she has been recognized as one of the women most likely to become president, okay, for, uh, from the League of Women Voters. I mean, that's a huge deal when we think about women presidents <laughs> at this point in, 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 the, in right. society. But just a few other ones. She's also served on uh, numerous boards for uh, professional and uh, community organizations through the, throughout the country. And she's won some very prestigious awards, including the District 17 Woman of the Year Award for the California Association of Black Lawyers President's Award. So that's huge in itself uh, there. And uh, the Association for Dispute Resolution of Northern uh, California's the Gil Lopez Award. Just a couple more, Yolanda. I know she's like, please stop it, Ricky, but I'm going to keep going, okay? Just a couple more. Just a couple more. Yeah, I told her I was going to get her today, okay? Again, we talked about the League of Women Voters, and I'm going to uh, make sure I bring it up a little bit later in the show here. But for me, I think that the, the biggest part of this is Yolanda has been recognized as a, a trailblazer it, throughout not just the Bay Area, throughout the country. There's not too many law circles that you'll go to where you won't hear her name you know, be echoed or talk about how she's impacted people. So I'm going to stop right there because we're going to really, really get into it. But Yolanda Jackson, YJ, welcome to the show, my sister. We are going to really, really be able to get into it. So it's a pleasure to be able to have you on the show today. Thank you both again. I really appreciate it. Thank you for that generous introduction. Did I put some respect <laughs> on your name? So secrets listeners, I just want to make sure that everybody's under, uh, uh, we're all on the same page today, because in this episode, we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking to Yolanda about her story and her career journey. We'll also get her perspective about getting on code in this village alignment, you know, that uh, with that release. We'll provide some receipts and mentoring advice in terms of finding your voice. And then we'll close out with a double dose of secrets from Yolanda on how you can find your voice and how leaders can use their power and privilege for good. So again, so let's jump on into this, Keith. So let's just start peeling back this onion on Yolanda Jackson today. Absolutely. I mean, after all that stank you put on, I don't know if Yolanda has anything else to say, but we're going <laughs> to let her try. We're going to <laughs> just for the record, I've never seen Yolanda be a loss for words. That's right. It's like, yeah. <laughs> she gonna find something to say. Absolutely. So Yolanda, we always start out our interviews on secrets by letting our listeners know who they're talking to. Let's get to know you a little bit better. Um, right. So why don't you just give our listeners a little bit about Yolanda? Kind of what was your upbringing like, and some of your career journey and educational background, some of that type of stuff, so people know who they're talking to. Okay. Well. I am from a pretty large family. I'm a middle child. And I think that explains a lot about how I've navigated my world professionally. Because again, I had like three siblings older than me and three siblings younger than me. And I was always in the middle of something, some sort of a dispute or discussion or mediation. I did learn to, to just deal with navigating difficult situations in my life. The other thing that I think kind of contributed to how I, again, navigate my professional world is I went to school out in the Russian River in Northern California for high school, and it was a predominantly white school and conservative white school. There were about 10 Black people in the school. I was one of them. And I ended up somehow, I still don't know exactly how this happened, but for my senior year, I was the pres voted president of our senior class in that environment. But again, what that I believe has done for me is make me skilled at navigating all sorts of people in the room, all sorts of opinion, even when you're the minority, and even when people don't quite trust you or know much about you because you're probably the, one of the first few Black people they've ever seen in their lives. And it just really makes you develop a skill to be able to have a conversation in any room that you're in. Ricky's talked to you about where I went to college and, and law school. There was no professional in my family. My father 
was a longshoreman, blue collar worker, but my family was considered middle class. And my mother was predominantly a stay at home mom, but I didn't have judges, lawyers, doctors, dentists. I didn't have any of those secondary degree professionals to look up to, to ask questions of in my family. And I was the first one to go to college out of six kids. And so I had to figure out and navigate the application process. How are we going to get funding to pay for college? Getting my family used to the idea that I was going to move to L.A. away from home. And there were five girls and one boy in my family. So my father definitely was not excited about having one of his daughters move to L.A. where there was really no family. But I wouldn't change a thing. And I know this is kind of prefacing where Ricky wants us to go um, with this discussion, but that is one of the reasons why I think it is so important to give back and to pay it forward to other Black people, because we just don't, I think we're getting better with it now as generations go on, because we probably have more Black professionals today than we've ever had in the history of uh, Black people in America. But I just think it is part of what I have to do, is, and, and that is to talk to people and kids about college and the process and how you can pay for it and what your job opportunities might look like. So that's kind of how my background shapes who I think I, I am today. Man, I mean, look, Yolanda, I, I appreciate, you know, you being, you know, open and candid, you know, about like your story and, and how you succeeded, you know, through college. And, and even, you know, when we start thinking about your career path, but I, I, I look, I, I knew like your mother and your father, right? And and I know how how proud they were, you know, of you and and but I also know like some of those skills that you picked up like from your mom, you know, and your dad. And what were what what are some of those skills I would say that you've, you know, picked up from them that you still kind of carry on today that you you it's not like you're trying to do it on purpose or when you take a back when you when you take a couple steps back you be like that's what Verna was taught me how to do <laughs> something like Miss Verna, you know. Yeah. But maybe talk about a couple of those and kind of how they influence like your work ethic, you know, and, and and how you you know operate today. So a couple things, Ricky. My mother was ahead of her time, I believe, and even though she didn't work, she ran a tight household with fiscal responsibility, and she raised us to just believe that girls could do anything boys could do. And I know that sounds like an outdated concept now, but that's what it was in the, the 60s and the 70s. And then my father only had one son and he was the last of us. So he's my the baby in the family. And so my father had his girls out there helping him pour cement and work on his cars. And I mean, you name it. So anything that, again, he would typically ask a son to do. We were out there helping him with these things, watching sports, growing up, watching basketball, football every Sunday. So that was part of it is that we never, at least in my mind, had gender boundaries and that anything we thought we wanted to do, our parents would set us up however they can or could to do this. My father, though, is one individual who I've never seen such an amazing work ethic in. He never called in sick for work. He worked two jobs, one as a longshoreman, one as a contractor, unionized contractor in San Francisco. In fact, he helped build the Hyatt Regency Hotel in the city. But he always showed up on time. He always worked overtime and extra time if they asked him to. And we saw all of that. It's not like he sat us down to tell us about it. We would just overhear conversations and watch him operate. And I think all of those have instilled themselves in me. And that is, I take my jobs very seriously. I don't take anything for granted. I'm never trying to just skate by and do the bare minimum in any job that I've ever had. But at the same time, when I'm at the table in a room, and this has happened quite a, a bit as a lawyer and just somebody who worked in financial services, you're often in a room with a bunch of white men and you're the only woman in the room and the only black woman. And I have never been afraid to speak up and to give my opinion. And I think that that's just really important. And the older you get, the more comfortable you get with what you say and how you say it. But both of those traits absolutely came from my, my parents. And again, I don't even know if they knew what they were doing at the time, but I would not trade it 
for the world. They, they didn't quite know they was creating a monster, did they? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hey, but look, Yolanda, I mean, again, your story is so many different layers, you know, to it. Like as you and you, you talked about being the only, you know, in the room, whether that be at the Fireman's Fund or, you know, in other roles. Did you feel like you had to be twice as good, you know, to, to succeed? You know, were there times or that maybe you can kind of maybe share with us about that? Yeah. So again, I was somebody who always just worked really hard and just knew, and I'm not, I didn't know in the moment that it was coming from the place of this is the only way I'm going to get ahead is if I'm twice as good. I was just somebody who always just worked really hard, took on any project that came my way that I found interesting. And what it did over time was just prove to others that I had a skill, that I had an analytical skill set that you know, looked deeply into things before we made decisions. I was willing to take risks as long as we had done our research and our homework. As a manager now, and I've been a manager much of my career, probably for like 30 years, I've supervised or managed someone. But what it does tell me is that even with peers for people who report to you and decision makers who are the supervisor's peers or my peers, there's always a skepticism around what Black people can do. They're not ever saying you can't do it, but they're going to ask more questions. They're going to assume the worst at certain points. And they're not, I don't think, mindful of what is happening there. And I'll give you one example. For me, when I first interviewed to become the executive director, I'd been with the the, the Bar Association for six or eight years before I became the ED. But when I interviewed, I can't tell you how much time they spent talking about my ability to fundraise. And this is a really big piece of the job. We just want you to understand you're going to have to put yourself out there and meet people and, you know, develop relationships and, you know, be willing to make that ask. And I've seen other EDs get interviewed in other organizations, and I've talked to them about this. And the emphasis is not so much on the point that there is a belief that Black women in particular will not be able to, you know, reach out to law firm leaders and partners predominantly who are white and actually get them to write a check to the organization. And so needless to say, I I nailed that. I've increased our fundraising by, you know, quite a bit. I would say at least like 30, 40 percent since I've been in the role. And again, at the time it was happening, I, I it didn't resonate with me. But as I reflect back to have this conversation That was one instance for me. And again, I see it every day when you have colleagues that work for you, you know, for me, questioning one of their Black colleagues, you know, one of their Black co-workers on, well, was this done right? Did this get done on time? Is this the way that you would have done it? You know, things like that. And I, part of my job now is to manage that, push back on it, ask the questions about where this is coming from. But it is, it is real. It is a real thing. And it's painful. Not only painful, it's painful in a disrespectful, you know, way, right? We talk about this all the time. And just the three of us in terms of, and I know we kind of take it for granted in terms of some of the accomplishments, you know, that we've had, you know, that we've been able to, to, to do at this point. But when we're interviewing or we're talking to people, a lot of times it's they really want to know how we know what we know and how could you have possibly, you know, done that versus congratulating you on that and then starting to think about how they could leverage those skill sets to help that organization do the same thing. Unfortunately, you know, you talk about that unconsciousness, you know, of it. I think it sometimes it's conscious, right? They've been doing this so long. It's like, how dare you question them on that? Answer the question. Why don't you? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But without paying respect or homage, you know, to your accomplishments, you know, up until this point. No, for sure. And I and I think, you know, reflecting on you having to go through that interview process and how many of us, when we're sitting in that chair, talking about leadership roles and wanting to step up to be that leader and how we're challenged on the things a lot of times that don't even matter, <laughs> right? Your resume speaks for itself. The points that you've already put on the board speak for themselves. So why are you, why are you asking me about this? Then, yeah. So, and I'm just curious... I don't think we've had a nonprofit leader on here yet on the podcast. 
Uh, we may have one. We may have one or two. But what is it exactly like in your role as ED of the San Francisco Bar Association? What does that mean? What, what do you do? So I'm basically the CEO of a corporation. It just mm-hmm. happens to be a nonprofit. But I, the buck stops with me on everything. So operations, um, financial performance, service performance. It's actually two organizations that I oversee. One is the Bar Association of San Francisco, and then the other is our legal services arm, which is like a mini law firm where we provide free legal services to the community. And between the two organizations, they're about a $15 million organization. When I first took them both over, they were combined about $6 million. And that's where we are now, is it about, again, at $15 million. And so not only am I dealing with a trade association, because that's the Bar Association side, but I'm also, again, running a law firm that provides like $19 million worth of free legal services in San Francisco and the Bay Area. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I have to imagine, as you've kind of been, I mean, you've been a lawyer for for a while, you know, and being a Black woman kind of coming up through that profession. I mean, it's not not one that you see a lot of folks of color, that you've certainly had your degree of microaggressions, probably macroaggressions, all of those types of things. Could you maybe talk about some of those challenges as you're kind of climbing the ladder to get to where you are today? So I guess a couple of things. Some of the most common, which I'm sure every Black person, no matter what their role is, experiences, but it is the quote-unquote intentional or unintentional ignoring in meetings, for example, right? So people will talk over you. People will listen to something you just said and then repeat it five minutes later as it's the first time the group has heard it and own it as their own idea. And let me just say on that one, one of the things I started doing way back when I was at Fireman's Fund, because I think I'm a little bold in this way, whenever somebody would do that to me, I would call it out. And I'd say, well, I just said that five minutes ago. And here's why, like the specific point that I wanted to make about that. But I will call it out. So that it doesn't just because I've seen it too many times where it just gets ignored. And if I'm in a room now with, again, other people of color or women, because it happens to women, I think, more than men, no matter what color they are. I will call it out on their behalf and say, well, Susan just said that a minute ago. So we heard it then. We think it was a good point. So, like, let's move on. But I will let people know that that that's just not okay. But that's a huge microaggression for women. You know, there's all sorts of microaggressions, like when we appear in court. And again, when we're in meetings where, you know, judges or clerks are just showing deference to the white male that's showing up and checking in, you know, like they get called to the front of the line to sign in when you go in, you know, to for a hearing or whatever at the, at the court. And then male judges often will get more comfortable having casual conversations with the men who are appearing. And what that does is it's not only offensive, again, to the female or the person of color, but it's also to the clients that are there, right? The clients pick up on the fact that the judge is acting more friendly to somebody who looks like him than the woman who happens to be representing them. I've heard, you know, because I actually did a, a survey of this once, but many women are presumed to be the client when they walk into the courtroom. So black female attorneys will walk in. You have to always sign in with the clerk, right? So you give me your card. I'm here making my appearance. And you have to go behind the gates to the the judicial area when you get to court. And they will stop them and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is only for attorneys. You need to wait back here behind the gates until your attorney gets here. And again, often the clients are there already just witnessing this whole thing. And so it's just... Things like that that happen day in and day out. You know, I heard a story from a Latina woman once who showed up for a job interview at a law firm and the receptionist asked her, was she the tamale lady de- delivering the tamales for, for lunch that day? And so we, we all know what implicit bias looks like. We get it. So again, we've all had those experiences. Mine, though, have just largely been just kind of people ignoring your presence in the room and just assuming that you don't have any value to bring to the conversation. But again, I am someone who is typically very forthright and I just don't let people get away with it. Like if I see it happening, I will very politely call it on the spot, correct somebody about whatever they think my title is, 
And it does, it does wear on you because now you're having to focus on something else that other people don't have to worry about every day while you're supposed to be working and doing your job. Right. But, but you know, Yolanda, I got to tell you, I mean, and, and I've learned this from you. I mean, we've sat in board meetings together and I've heard someone make a suggestion or make a comment. It gets ignored. And then you really hear a lot of will pipe up and say, that's a great idea that you just repeated that such and such, you know, just said, right. <laughs> or if you even see a friend or a family or, you know, colleague, you know, not get the shine that they should get, you know, from something like, hey, again, I just want to make sure that we stop and make sure that, you know, Keith, you know, did this and he put in a lot of effort, you know, there like that is, again, not easy to do. And I know that some people in the power structure like to look at that as, okay, here she is being a a problem or this, that, and the other. But I got to tell you that I've really learned how to do that on a regular basis and do it in such a way where it challenges the status quo, but it's not disrespectful. And I've got, right. you know, and from that's it. the key is it has to be done respectful. It can't be yep. done with animosity or anger. It has to be just something as a co-professional in the room, you're willing to step up and say either on behalf of yourself or someone else. I agree, Ricky. Yeah. Yeah. As I start thinking about like, you know, some of those, those pieces there, like I I, I want to think about maybe on the flip side, you know, that, you know, we, we, we talked about you know, like some of those challenges, you know, that you've, you know, had before, but on the flip side, like what were one or two triumphant like moments, you know, for you that you can think of when you start thinking about like your, your, your career, like when you said, you know what, like, I got this, like I made it, like what, what were a couple of those? Let's see. So Part of how I I kind of measure when I got to that point where I really just don't have any inhibitions walking into any room at any time. And that is when I realized that I had proven myself with my skills. And that's taken a long time. I've been I've been working for 40 years and I realized that once you get to the place where people can't question your work product and not in a way that's meaningful. People will always try to attack it or nitpick. But once you get to that place where you know that you are good at your job, whatever that is, if it's managing, if it's a technical skill, if it's running an HR department or running, you know, being a CFO and doing the best that, you know, that you know that you can do and you're probably ahead of many of your colleagues and peers, that gives you the confidence to really talk about things and to push back on things that you see that are not right. So I think that was a triumph for me as much as, as, you know, growing up and like I said, sitting at the executive tables at Fireman's Fund and again, dealing with billion dollar claims processes when, when I was working there, I did, and I can't even tell you exactly when it happened, but I, at some point I got to the place and I said, all of these long years of working hard and just always being excellent and having high standards for myself are paying off because people see it. They don't have to ask me about it as much anymore. Like I don't get a lot of questions now in my job about, are you a good leader? Can you manage this money? Do you know what's happening in your financial department? Are you aware of what's going on with all of the different programs you all run? That's even no, no longer a question because that's something that I prioritized for myself because I knew I needed that to be able to answer these questions whenever they came up. Like, I don't want anything happening in one of my departments that turns out to be newsworthy or something that's not good for the organization. And a board member comes to me and says, did you know about this? And I say, no, I didn't. Like that. So those are just kind of the standards that I set for myself. And I think that that's a triumph because, again, there were many microaggressions and macroaggressions along the way. But now it's almost like I don't care about them anymore because I know what I know and I know what I can accomplish and I've proven what I can accomplish. And to me, that's no longer up for debate on some level. Now, I know you can't do that in your 20s and 30s. I I get that. But I would say during your 20s and 30s, what you can do is hone your skill and be the best that you can be at what you do. And then that voice will come and it will come naturally and it will be listened to and it will help other people coming behind you and be so like one example I have now is I do sit in meetings and they're mixed group meetings. And there are a lot of smart black people at the table, a lot, usually, you know, very smart. And 
they will not speak up during meetings. If there's like 20 people in a room and if it's a mixed crowd, I know they have brilliant things to say and I'll make it a point of mine, especially if I'm leading the meeting to call on them because I know there's stuff there that is really important for everybody to hear. But I just do see some folks who would just would rather, I don't even know why, but they don't speak up and make their voice heard when I know that it's really important that they do. This is not a criticism. I just think that's how some people navigate their their work world. But I think we would all be better off if more people of color would be willing to speak up in a room of mixed company and tell what they know and share what they know, because it's going to add to a better end result of whatever the meeting's about. In my opinion. You know what, Yolanda, one of the a triumphant moment, like just off from the sidelines that I've seen, you know, from you and I, I kind of knew you have made it now. And so, Keith, now you know what I'm talking about here. When you go over to Yolanda's house and you see them pictures over there and you see, wait a minute, is that Hillary Clinton that she with? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> wait a minute. Is Blair Underwood that she got a picture with? You know, like, you know, yeah, I'm name dropping now. And it's a few other ones, you know, uh, in there. But one of the times when I knew, like, you were like, hey, Ricky, real quick, like, we're eating dinner, doing something. You're like, hey, one second, I got to take this car and I come back. And we're clowning you. And I'm like, who was that? The mayor? Who was that? You know, such and such car. And she says, yes. It's <laughs> 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 okay my mind. I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> honestly, you know you've made it when, when people really, really rely on your professional, you know, opinion. When they call you before, you know, stuff hits the public, basically, and ask for your guidance on how to kind of navigate that. Like I've been around you countless times when notable individuals call upon you, <laughs> you know, for your advice. In my mind, I don't think that when you were thinking about going to UCLA or when you were going to a law school that that you would make it to that pinnacle. But I, I really do, you know, see that as a moment. A quick question for, for you though is now I realize, you know, you know, in terms of like your the responsibility that you have today. But was there a moment when you actually, you know, and I know you sit in, in meetings now and you 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 are a people leader, but was there a moment or a, a flick of the light switch when you actually found your confidence, you know, as a leader? I know like you've actually accomplished a ton of those things, like uh, uh, accolades and whatnot, but was there a moment in time when you said, you know what, enough is enough, right? Or I'm going to, you know, like I, from now on, I'm not going to be on nine. I'm going to be on 10, you know. Yeah. From now on. So at Ricky, I think that that really started and it, it's been a growth over the years, but I think that really started when I first started leading teams and started getting put into like the boardroom or the big meet, executive meetings where, you know, again, financial and operations decisions about organizations were being made. And I think part of it was just the fact that I was invited to the table. I took that as a real responsibility. And again, my responsibility was not to just sit there and observe others. So I think that's when it started, when I really started to recognize that what I had to say was valuable and that people listened and that decisions were made or changed based on input that I had over the years. And then now, again, it's just, it's an it's a critical part of the job that I do. Like if I don't have confidence to sell what our organizations uh, do, if I don't have the confidence to want to raise money and bring funding into the organization, if I don't have the confidence to stand by and for the people who work for me, I would be a failure in this role. And so I just think it's it's a it's part of the job description in the role I'm in for sure. Uh, right now. But it's probably started when I first started, again, managing and supervising people and getting invited into bigger Mm -hmm. circles where we were really talking about the fundamentals of the the corporation. No, I appreciate that. Thank thank you for that, uh, for that candor, because I'm always curious about when people, when and how, (laughs) you know, and and that's a perfect example. Yeah, for sure. And y'all remember in our seasoning opener where we were talking about getting on code and we define what that looked like and what it doesn't look like. I'm just going to say Yolanda is on code. (laughs) There is no doubt about it right now. So y'all are witnessing it in real time as you're listening to this podcast, what it means to get on code. Yolanda, I mean, you talked about, you know, you're giving back to the community. 
you have the trust of public officials and friends and everybody who are calling on you for different things. You're mentoring young people, helping out aspiring young lawyers. So why is it important for you to be this type of person? Because we know all three of us have some trifler friends. (laughs) 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 They get these big titles, uh, you know, (laughs) they sit in these chairs, they at the table and then they don't do shit. (laughs) Right. So why is it important for you to be that person that's on code? (laughs) So I think both of you know that I'm very spiritual and, you know, have beliefs in God. And I really do think that a lot of what makes me a successful professional are gifts. And for me, it just feels really selfish and well, it makes it just feels really selfish for me to just use those gifts to only propel myself with more and to go higher, right? So I'll go back to what I said at the, the start of the program that I did not have a lot of professional examples of people that I could go to when I was trying to navigate all of this. Most of how I've gotten to where I am now is because I made really good friends in my profession across the board and just learned from watching and listening to other people. They didn't necessarily come to mentor me, but I asked questions and I I just learned as much as I could about what this beast of the legal profession looks like and how it how it navigates itself. And so I have made it a point of mine for many many years now since becoming a lawyer to make myself available to any young person whether it's a college student, high school student, a law student, a young associate, somebody who's an associate who's trying to become a partner, somebody who's a partner who's trying to become an equity partner, all of these different steps along the way. And if they have questions for me, Ricky will be the first to tell you that I will take that meeting, whether they want it in person, if they want it by phone. Now a lot of stuff is done by Zoom. But there, I probably get 20, 25 of these calls a year where people just saying, can I have a conversation with you? I heard that you just know so many people in the profession. You know so much about how to navigate it. I'm thinking about moving from this role to that role. I'm thinking about going to in the criminal law space versus the big private firm space. What do you know about that? I want to become an employment lawyer. Do you know anybody who's a partner in that area and who can talk to me about that? And so I, there's a running joke around all of my colleagues um, that I've developed over the year that if Yolanda calls, you pick up that call because she's normally calling for somebody else and to get you to help out with the community. So I have a lot of really good friends. Ricky has been one of those who, where I will call and I will say, I need you to talk to this person when I'm not taking no for an answer. How soon can you meet with them? And it has really worked. Keith, Ricky was talking about that hall of fame award that I got And that was largely what that was based upon is that I've touched so many lives within the Black, in particular, the Black legal community. And I'll use my time to mentor anybody who calls. Again, I'm just dedicated to making sure that people of, you know, people of color or people without resources have a way to know how to move to the next step. And I really enjoy it. I don't spend the time just telling more stories about my path because my path is very unique and very different. That to me, me is not very helpful to anybody. But what I do spend a lot of time doing is listening to them, tell me what they want, where they're trying to get and why. And then you know me, I ask a lot of questions about what they've said. And then that leads into the advice, right? But I, I hear them out and I really want them to respond to questions so that what they're saying they want is, make, is now still making sense to them. And the other thing is that you can imagine I run an association that has over 7,000 members. I have a vast network. I have a quote unquote Rolodex that's pretty impressive. Um, And again, not bragging, but I'm just saying that's what it's developed into given my role. And I'm not afraid to introduce people to other people who can help them more than I can. And because of my reputation, again, people say yes. And I, I just think it's it's a very valuable resource to the Bay Area. I'll, I mean, I'll talk to people out of state as well, but most of my work is here in the Bay Area. And it has truly changed lives. It has really just exposed people and opened people up to 
oh my God, Yolanda, I can't believe, you know, introduced me to so-and-so and that I got hired by that firm and I'm working in that, that practice group. So I've gotten where, where I was trying to get before I talked to you. So that's one of the best parts of my job right now, to be perfectly honest with you. And, and, and let me just make sure that I, that I again, I'm, I'm over here to keep it real over here, Keith, because she was being nice about some of that stuff. Like <laughs> literally I have, we were in a, at a ceremonial dinner here where she was getting ignited. Other people were, but when Yolanda came, when they were announcing Yolanda, they was up there crying, talking about, I would not be an attorney if it wasn't for Yolanda. I would not be doing this, that, and the other, like crying during the presentation, right? So when you're talking about like the impact that you're making, and she was being nice about it, but she will kind of cuss, cuss at me to make sure that I get back to somebody because she's like, no, nah, I didn't send you an email and you did not respond. OK, I'm calling you directly. I expect a phone call by the end of the day. I expect you to handle your business by the end of the day. Yes, ma'am. Yo, <laughs> there we go. Yolanda, I'm glad we're in the same boat. <laughs> exactly. I, I told y'all I'm a bad I'm a bad email and Facebook friend. You got to call me. I'm old school with it. you. Got to call me. Yeah, do not try to say anything to him on Facebook, Keith, ever. Because <laughs> It'll be six months before he sees it. <laughs> I'm going to go in there and like it. I'm going to go in there and like it when I get a chance. You know what I mean? Let you know I saw it. But uh, look, as you're talking about getting on code, Yolanda, I mean, you talk about, again, just your the, the vast knowledge of individuals that you have, the time that you break off for people. And I got to say, I have seen that and I have tried to emulate you know that. So as we're talking about, you know, being on code, like that is exactly what the village alignment, you know, is supposed to be about. But another element of getting on code is just not being a bystander. That's a lot going on out there. And to sit around and act like it's not happening, you know, or like it doesn't impact you or your community, there are so many of us who just don't engage. Like we won't call any names out. We can all look at our friends in our phone, whatever it is, no matter what field it is. Our secrets village knows what we're talking about. It's a whole bunch of people who just don't speak up. They don't vote. They don't do any of that stuff, but always got something to say. But you told me once that democracy is not a spectator sport. Can you say just a little bit more about that? Now, don't get mad now. Don't get mad when you do it, Yolanda, because I know, I know you be serious when you're talking about this. I will just say that I think every Black person in America should just look at the history of voting for Black people, how it started, how it slowly progressed over time, and how things finally began to change for us once we were given the right to vote in a meaningful way. We still have struggles. We still have voter suppression happening across the country in 2023. But for anybody now who doesn't see the importance of kind of understanding your local politics and how it affects your life and your family's lives, state politics, understanding the roles of judges, for example, many of whom are elected, some appointed across the country. But the decisions that are made by, and, and, and for example, in California, most of our judges, our, our state judges are appointed by the governor. So one individual gets to appoint most of the judges throughout the country. So you can imagine a lot of that is political appointments. But you, the amount of power that judges have, again, most people don't even realize it, to make laws to interpret laws and to determine how we live our lives, how our kids live our lives, what school districts have and don't have. And, you know, all of these things that we all just kind of take for granted or just so often just say, well, that's just the way it is. I just really implore people to, however you can, get involved in the democratic process. Uh, I'm not saying you need to run for office, I, but I am saying that you do need to understand how the laws are made around you how the Supreme Court affects our lives. We're always focused on the Supreme Court, but in all honesty, that's the least tangible to us when it comes to the laws that we have to live by in our local community. Yes, they have this national presence and opinion about things like voting rights and uh, you know reproductive rights and all of those things, but we know that states can create their own laws that impact us more, more deeply. And again, we very often just don't pay attention to what our legislators are doing. 
We don't pay attention to what the governor is doing and some of the laws that he signs in, in California, he. So we do a lot of complaining about it. We absolutely do a lot of complaining about the way things are, but there are things that we can all do to get involved and to make change. Again, on your city council, your board of supervisors, whatever it is, just understand what's going on and figure out how you can be a voice to help change the things that people vote on and, you know, and propositions and things like that, because they do, they do impact us much more closely again than a lot of the work that Supreme Court does. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you uh, for being able to talk about democracy not being a spectator sport, but I also appreciate those phone calls uh, that we have those group phone calls where when the, when the voting ballot comes out and you're actually explaining to people what each vote, you know, what each issue on the ballot means. Yeah. And if you vote yes, what that means. And if you vote no, what, what, again, examples of getting on code and making sure that everyone understands. So I appreciate that. So there was a, a hidden agenda to that question. Well, and the, other, the other thing I'll, I'll add, um, Ricky, is a lot of people don't donate to political campaigns. And so we have a lot of African-American politicians running for higher office. And I'll just call her out now. You guys may want to, uh, you can decide if you want to keep this in or out. But Barbara Lee, for example, is running, trying to run for the Senate seat that Diane Feinstein is going to vacate hopefully pretty soon. And Barbara Lee, by uh, she was on the show, you know, season, uh, okay. season well, two, okay. I think that was, right, Keith? Yep. yep, she was on. And all of her white colleagues who are running for the same seat are just out fundraising her by a lot. That's all mm. I can tell you. It's like 70% more. And it's unfortunate because Barbara Lee is a really good politician. I think she's done great things for Oakland and the East Bay. I know she will speak up on the Senate and not tolerate a lot that happens at that level. But there was an article recently that just talked about how part of this is because Black professionals who have the means do not support, and I'm not saying all Black candidates are excellent and you must support them, but just traditionally we don't support Black politicians who can often put our quote unquote agendas forward mm -hmm. and, and at least speak to what we need when they're in, in the negotiated negotiation. Room. So that's unfortunate, but that is a, that is a real part of democracy is that it's being able to have making people, giving people the ability to run for a campaign yep. successfully. Well, there you go. Everybody got their civics lesson today. So y'all pay yes. attention. Y'all pay yes. attention. And I know you you were talking about the judges at the Supreme Court. So I'll wrap it up with this last question about what does it mean to you, you know, as a black female lawyer and other of your black female colleagues to have Katanji Brown Jackson on the Supreme Court? What how does that resonate? Well, I will start with the the very obvious point in that. Let's just pause and recognize that she is the first Black woman on the Supreme Court in 233 years. And so that alone should bring us all a lot of pride, especially for those of us who are women and who are African-American. But also we should be a bit embarrassed as a nation that in 233 years, there had never been a Black woman on the Supreme Court. So needless to say, she had to go through a lot to get there. Just getting into the law school that she went to and getting appointed to the bench a couple times and, and to make it to the place to even quote unquote qualify to be considered for the Supreme Court. But one of the things that most impressed me about her was how she handled those Senate confirmation hearings and the extreme attack that she was under for days, things that really didn't matter, but that the questioners knew would try to unravel her or to make her look bad on a national level. But her poise and her tolerance and her patience throughout the process just tells us that that is what many Black women have to do anytime they're going for any position. Like we can't get emotional. We can't get excited like our white colleagues can often and still be respected or to be taken seriously for whatever it is that we're applying for. So. She trained a long time for this, just being a judge on the bench where you're being attacked every day by people who don't want to see you up there. It builds a character in you uh, that, again, led her to this place. So I'm extremely proud of her. 
for herself, for the country, and for, for Black women. And I'm just really sorry it took so long. Mm, man, that's deep. We're proud of you too, Yolanda. Let's 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 make sure we uh we point that out there. We're that's proud right. of you. That's right. <laughs> but you know, hey, this is the part of the show where we kind of go in here and we start letting folks know we're not just picking guests, you know, off of a tree over here and trying to you know bring people on here who don't have impact. It, there's a reason why we're doing this. So this is the part of the show where we get into our receipts because again, we always say it. You know, you're not crazy. OK, and here are some of the uh, the receipts that we're going to share today. Today, we'll provide some receipts on mentoring and finding your voice. So, Keith, why don't you just hit us with receipt number one? Sure. Receipt number one, uh, according to various academic studies over the past 40 years, there is proven now that there are many benefits of mentoring for the mentee and for the mentor. And employees who have mentors earn more money are better socialized into the organization, and are more productive. They experience less stress and get promoted more rapidly also. And mentors, on the other hand, get the satisfaction of seeing somebody develop. And mentees, at the end of the day, mentees can help mentors out at some point in their career. I've had several of my mentees, you know, move past me at some point, or being able to call on them for, for different things at some point in my career. And mentees also make a mentor look good at the end of the day. This is part of getting on code at the end of the day. Mentors learn a lot about their companies. They discover new ideas. They improve their networks. And they know about what goes on in the lower level of their organization. All of those things are really important for you as a leader in terms of building your career and building your capacity as well. KP, look, that's been studied for over the past 40 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that is not something new. But again, we're talking about it, the importance, you know, of uh, of being a mentor. Receipt number two, according to mentoring.org, young adults with a mentor are 55% less likely than their peers to skip a day of school, 78% more likely to volunteer regularly, 90% are interested in becoming a mentor, and check this out, Keith, 130% are more likely to hold leadership positions in the future. If that ain't like the the, the receipt for you, I, if that doesn't resonate with you, I don't know what else will. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that talk goes to what Yolanda was talking about, why she steps forward to mentor young aspiring lawyers, because it's kind of playing mm -hmm. it forward. It's playing it forward and it has an impact. And that's how you end up with a Hall of Fame award. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, and I think, Ricky, to your receipt number two point, a lot of these kids, you we just don't know how powerful it is for them to have professionals take the time yeah. to talk to them about how to move forward. Again, it may not be the exact path that the mentor took, you know, that this the mentee is going to take. But let's just be honest. We are still in a place where most Black families and students don't have people they can turn to to ask very fundamental right. or basic questions. And then to have this people, these, these uh, mentors pour into you, right? With their knowledge, their compassion, their instruction, their guidance. And that, so your statistics about how school becomes more exciting for them now, and they have a goal they're trying to reach, mm -hmm. and then they figured that's how I got there. So I'm going to do the same thing when I make it. None of that surprises me because it's all about human dynamics, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, absolutely. It's so true. It's so true. And our third receipt, we'll pivot and talk about speaking up and finding your voice and why it's so important. A recent article in Business Woman Media cited studies that showed 72% of employees and 69% of managers say they avoid speaking up, even when they know it will be detrimental to their role the project that they're working on or to their business. And I think, Yolanda, you were talking about this earlier, how, you know, you've seen several Black people in particular sitting in the room not speaking up. And this, it, there's the proof. It happens, yeah. right? It's not yeah. just not just an observation. It's as measurable results that people don't speak up. Yeah. And, and again, unfortunately, like, you know, all of us have sat in the executive leadership team meetings and when people don't speak up, you start to kind of attribute that to a lack of engagement, you know, or knowledge. Or, or, yeah, like, absolutely. Or knowledge, even like them not knowing what's happening, you know, there or yeah. even a lack of a lack of passion, you know, which is probably even worse, you know, in most cases uh, there. So, look, so uh, the final receipt, receipt number four in an uh, Inc. article titled Why Finding Your Voice Really Isn't About You. 
by Rebecca um, Illiff, she states that one of the most rewarding things about having a voice is the ability to open the door for others to do the same. This is also the hallmark of true leadership. I fundamentally believe this is the number one purpose of learning how to successfully speak up and stand, you know, like stand our ground. Like without it, it's almost like impossible to uh, be able to uh, be consistent there. Once we have the ear of others established by a positive track record, we can then in turn begin to foster confidence and assertiveness of those who may not have, you know, a voice. Again, to what Yolanda was saying, when people see you speak up, they're like, oh, okay. Or when you speak up and you keep it real, and they're like, okay, I can do that, you know, as well. So if you are one of those people who loves doing things for others, but lack the confidence to speak on your own behalf, perhaps this is a useful way for you to think about how you can find your own voice. If not for yourself, just do it for other, for the others. Do it for the village. Be on code. <laughs> you well, know? I would say too, Ricky, just recognize that these are the these are rare opportunities for you to actually show your peers what you know, how you think, and what value you bring to the organization. That's not always going to show up in a project that you turn in or even a new engineering invention that you've come up with. If you just do all of your technical work at your desk and grind it out, and then you you get invited to meetings where broader things are being discussed and you just don't talk or say anything, that just conveys so many messages to the rest of the people in the room. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just does. And not intentionally, but it does. So like you said, it either means you don't know much about the topic and you don't have anything to add, or you're just somebody who's quiet and you're not engaged and you don't care about the conversation that's happening, all of which I'm assuming in most cases is false. But I think we just have to get over that fear. And I'm not sure what the fear is. If you think people are going to talk over you, shut you down, criticize your opinion, I'm not sure. But we just have to get better at that because that's also part of building your future and you you going to the next step. Because if if you're just strong technically, but you t- show that you can't engage in a conversation or manage or supervise people, you're not going to be the top candidate when, a, like, again, a promotable job comes up, especially as an executive. So I just really encourage people to figure out how to find their voice and just know I've never been in a situation where somebody's told me to shut up and stop talking or you don't know what you're talking about or that's just straight out flat wrong. I've never, ever had that happen to me. Yeah. And and I think what you talk about is compounded when you're a marginalized individual, you know, a person of color, a woman, all of those things are compounded. And I think that by not speaking up to you for yourself, you know, or or having that voice, this is a major component to you not being able to get your piece of the pie in terms of your generational wealth, right? So it's really not about you as they were uh, speaking about here on uh, with uh, receipt number four. But, you know, we're lucky here today, Keith, because we do have mm-hmm. Yolanda, you know, on. Uh, and I, I want to make sure that our Secrets Village gets an opportunity to witness greatness, you know, here, right? So we're going to have a double dose of secrets for everyone today. We're going to let Yolanda provide three secrets on how you can develop resilience and find your voice. And then we'll close out the episode with three additional secrets from Yolanda on how leaders can get on code and use their power and privilege for good. So Yolanda, what would you recommend to people trying to build themselves up and their voices, right? I know you've already dropped gem after gem, you know, today, but if you could just summarize maybe three three, uh, pieces here for helping people find their voices, I'd appreciate it. Okay. So the first one is to just Learn your style and how it be it can become comfortable for you to navigate the inevitable racism and bias that we all know is in the space. Let's not act like it doesn't exist. Let's just accept that it does. But just figure out, again, for me, I'm pretty outspoken, so it's not that hard. But for others, I get it. More, you know, some people are just more cerebral and doers, but figure out how you can be a part of the conversations where decisions are being made and speak up and advocate for yourself. That's the other thing that I would say is not only speak to help better the organization and whatever decision they're trying to make, but make sure that people know the work that you're doing. I will also just say a lot of Black people, we were raised to be humble. 
And so that means we're not always running around talking about the project that we just, you know, kicked butt on and did a really good job on. But often that's the excuse you get on the back end is we had no idea you had done all of these things, right? So just figure out how to navigate that advocating for yourself in a way that's, you know, respectful and that people just don't think all you're doing is bragging all the time. But I don't think Black people, and I'm guilty of this myself, necessarily talk about the work that we do and the knowledge that we have enough, because it's often, again, used as an excuse on the back end when people say, oh, we had no idea. So get, get comfortable doing that. We already talked again about the confidence building and that your confidence that you achieve is going to be based on your skills and how hard you work and the reputation that you have. And once that's intact and in a solid place, that confidence will come behind it. And you will be willing to take more chances, to take more risks, and to speak up in a way that might be a little controversial, but something that people need to hear. And it will be respected better and more because people will know that you are very knowledgeable and very skilled and can be very valuable to the conversation. The third thing I would say is know how to build your personal brand. And whatever your role is within your corporation, always try to put yourself in a situation where you can learn more about the business because none of our individual roles are going to be enough to sustain that corporation. So again, if you're in technology and engineering, get yourself in a space where you know and understand the financials of the organization, you understand what drives the profits, what drives the losses, you understand the operations decisions that, that circle around your work. You understand how the sales department ties in with the product that you're building. Put yourself in a way where you know where your skill fits into the broader organization and you will position yourself to then be considered for growth and executive roles because you understand the business and you just cannot get ahead very quickly or very far if you don't understand the needs of the business outside of your one little role or department or project. So those are my three. Mm, mm, mm. <coughs> Boy, woo, fire and smoke over there, man. We got to see right. the fire department over there, man. We got to see the fire department over there. <laughs> <laughs> smoke coming out your ears. Huh? Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> hey, we've been talking all day today about getting on code, and you have been an exemplary example of what it looks like to be on code. So what advice would you give to... Uh, leaders who are struggling to get on code or struggling to kind of use their position of power to help their fellow brother or sister out? The first thing I would say is be selfless, because to me, people who don't do this are being a little selfish. They're either convincing themselves they don't have the time or they may believe they don't have anything to add or share. But be selfless about it and be mindful of what this can do for Black people and generations to come if we get this right. And we start to, as Ricky just pointed out, build it into generations of people who have been mentored, and then they will understand the value when they are asked to do the same down the road. So I think just let's know that we are helping ourselves again for generations to come, and it doesn't take a lot of work. And I've never seen anybody exploit one of my relationships that I've connected them to or mistreated it. And I've gotten a call back saying, don't you ever send me somebody else to talk to. That was, a, I've never <laughs> had that happen. So there's not a lot of risk to it. It really just takes a lot of time. Don't make it about you. Again, don't go in with the war stories and you've just got to work hard and put your head down. And like, that's not helpful to anyone. Let's just say that that's a given and then help people just navigate the space that they're trying to, to get into. Yeah, those are, those are my tips on that man look all, all i can say yolanda is there's a reason why we why we got you on here okay there is a reason so based off of everything that you've been saying i mean i mean there is an accountability to being your friend okay like i'm gonna say that right now because if you ain't holding up your end of the bargain you ain't getting invited over for no food i know that <laughs> I know that. Okay. That is, that is fact. Okay. So, but look, Yolanda, I am so very grateful that you were able just to bless the mic for us today and drop just gym after gym after gym. Like this was like hot ass fire today. Okay. Secrets Village, 
man, we just we just not playing with y'all in season number six. Me and Keitha, we we angry about some things that's been happening. So we want to bring it to you all to make you all inspire you to want to make change also. So, so Yolanda, we sincerely appreciate you for just being with us today. And it's just an honor again, just to call you my sister and my friend. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed having this conversation with both of you, two superstars in the professional space for sure. And I know and see and hear what you guys are teaching black professionals. And I'm really proud of the work that you both are doing and your creativity and innovation in this space. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And I, I want to extend my thanks also, Yolanda. And I'm just going to say, Yolanda could throw down in the kitchen too, y'all. So we ain't even talk about that today. But <laughs> yeah, that, might be, that might be a special episode that we talk that about. Might, you know, we might have to get on like an Instagram live and have like a throwdown or something. I don't know, Yolanda. We're going to figure it <laughs> out. <laughs> but sincerely, thank you for being on the show today. And you all can find more resources about what we've been talking about today uh, by going to our website, secrets.com. Looking in the show notes for the episode, you'll be able to find Yolanda in there, her organization, as well as some of the uh, receipts uh, that we talked about today. So, Yolanda, you are officially in the Secrets Village, okay? I'm thinking if if, if you if we didn't say you was officially in there, we would probably be getting some of them hate mail, phone calls, or something like that, uh, Keith. <laughs> so we want to make it official so the world knows she in the village. And our Secrets Village just continues to grow because of people like you, Yolanda, and also like our listeners, right? We have to make sure that we understand we are trying to blow it up and out the water in 2023. So you can help us out by telling Five friends, okay? This is friends helping friends over here. You can tell five friends to listen, to join our LinkedIn group and uh, our, our community of practice, and just write a review on Apple or Spotify. Also, get that gear. I got some on today. Keith got some. I know I, Yolanda got some, too. She ain't got it on today, but she got some. I know that for a fact. But everybody, just help your brothers out. Let's just keep on growing this village. Absolutely. And that coin meter is spinning on our website. So you go on that website, you're going to see that coin meter at the top just spinning with all the money that we've helped people gain in terms of total compensation. You know, we've we're nice. tipped the scales and over seven million dollars in total compensation increases that we've been able to help people negotiate over the past two years. And we want to get that to 50. We're going to shut it down when we get it to 50. So. <laughs> but we've done our part to create generational wealth at that point. But we're at seven. But again, if you've been putting off coaching, stop it. Let, let's get let's get on code. Let's get on yeah. code. Help Absolutely. each other out. This is time for you to invest in yourself, you know, so you can start generating that generational wealth for yourself and tell a friend also. Right. And we have some exciting partnerships that we're going to be announcing soon that will help bring even more tools to your toolkit to boost your career. And we're going to be having conversations around some of these tough topics around anti-racism and 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 all the things, because that's <laughs> what we need to do if we're going to dismantle the system. We got to talk about it, people. And so we're going to do it. Yeah. And, and, and again, we want to thank uh, Yolanda Jackson once again for being with us today. We're going to refill these cups and get back at it. Secrets Village, we appreciate y'all. We would not be able to do this without you. Thanks for tuning in to Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Peace. Peace, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed yet another episode of Secrets. If you are motivated and excited about being a part of the Secrets Village after listening to Keith and Ricky, please show these brothers some love by spreading the word to people that you know need this knowledge. Until next time, cheers.